This is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. President Biden getting ready for what might be the most important diplomatic mission of his presidency. We are going to go in-depth into his upcoming visit to Israel. And Alec Baldwin is in legal trouble again in New Mexico after it appeared that his case had been closed. And will speed cameras work to slow down L.A. drivers? What we're talking about here is like red light cameras, you know, where you could get a ticket if you run a red light because the camera caught you. Well, it's the same thing with the speed cameras. Right. Uh, but there are some very distinct differences. Yes, with absolutely. This one that we are going to point out. We're going to get back to our Israel Hamas topic here. President Biden's upcoming trip to Israel. We have Dove Waxman, director of the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies and is the author of Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Dove, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me on the program. Uh, so Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been multiple times since the terror attack in Israel. Uh, uh, also, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said during a visit to Tel Aviv on Sunday that, of course, uh, he is supportive of Israel and that U.S. lawmakers are are going to be supporting them in every way. Now we have the president uh, visiting Israel, and uh, you got to wonder about, one, not just the optics of it, the obvious optics of it, but two, the timing. Why now? Why not before? Well, I think this obviously took uh, some uh, time to arrange, given everything that's been happening in Israel and in in the Gaza Strip. Um, So Secretary of State uh, Blinken went there first to obviously lay the groundwork for the president's visit seems that this visit was uh, very hastily arranged, put together at the last minute. Um, And I think it is a response to the very fast uh, breaking situation there, and particularly the uh, imminent uh, possibility of uh, Israeli uh, ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. I think it's a response in many ways to get uh, for the president to hear firsthand what exactly Israel has planned in terms of this ground uh, operation and uh, what their uh, war objectives are and and what, if anything, they have planned for uh, after the war, if they are able to succeed in in toppling Hamas's government in the Gaza Strip. And with President Biden making this trip on uh, tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, uh, does this mean that uh, we can kind of hold off on expecting this imminent ground invasion? Because since last weekend, we've been told that that ground invasion could begin at any moment, and it hasn't. There has been some delay on that. Does the, the president's trip there signal a further delay in a ground invasion? Yes, I think it does. I think it is is partly kind of buying time uh, um, while the Israelis prepare for this ground invasion. And also because of the possibility, and it's a real risk that Hezbollah might get involved in this. I think there's obviously uh, trying, the U.S. and Israel is trying to do their utmost to ensure that Hezbollah doesn't get involved, to prepare for the possibility that they will, as well as Iran. So, yes, I think this is likely to delay the beginning of the uh, ground offensive in the Gaza Strip, and also maybe um, buy some time for maybe some other possibilities uh, which might emerge from the president's visit. All right, Dove Waxman, uh, thanks for uh, stepping in to talk to us today, uh, director of the UCLA YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies, also author of The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. Right now, though, playing out as we speak, Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan Lost his first attempt to become the next House Speaker. He couldn't get enough Republicans to support him. 
Rena Shah is a Republican strategist and former congressional senior staffer. Rena, thank you for joining us. Love having you on the show. Thank you. So um, are we going to see him go up to bat as many times as we saw Kevin McCarthy? And is it uh, 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 a promising um, sign for Jordan that we're seeing right now minority leader Hakeem Jeffries getting more votes than Jordan at this point? Well, it's certainly unusual right now to see Jeffries pull ahead. But the math is not on Jordan's side. So whether they want to take this out, Republicans want to drag this out the way they did with McCarthy, I don't think so. I mean, look at what's happened so far over, well, well over a dozen defections. And that makes it much harder for Jordan in the short period of time that's needed to get these people seeing things his way. Now, he tried in a dear colleague letter just yesterday to say, look, I'll be the unifier. I'll be the person you want. I'll be the one to save us from the embarrassment. But the embarrassment continues. And I'll tell you who's doing it. It's really the more moderate Republicans who are afraid of their reelection chances in tough districts, which Biden won. They believe that Jordan is too far right for them and would perhaps be the reason that they would lose in the next cycle. Is that also coming, uh, some of the fear coming from uh, the other side of the the, uh, building uh, with the Senate Republicans who are concerned about this dysfunction in the House and uh, their belief, it, it would appear that Jim Jordan is not the answer? You know, I think that's a fair concern. Certainly, we've heard reports of Republican senators saying they're horrified that it's this far along. Here we sit over two weeks now since Kevin McCarthy was ousted. I think a great many Republicans within the conference thought that this would all be sorted out by now. But that yo-yo from Scalise to Jordan, and let's not forget what just happened just a few days ago on Friday. It was Austin Scott, another Republican congressman, that challenged Jordan, and Jordan barely made it out with that vote as well. So the unity that is really the key word of the day that's needed just isn't there. Jim Jordan is somebody who, you know, look, this can't be overstated. In his 16 years in Congress, has not had a single piece of legislation that he has sponsored that has made it into law. But the one thing he has done is called for a special committee to look into the deep state and a resolution in which he created that was passed. So it seems that he's somebody that, again, wants to go to the edges. He wants to be performative. He hasn't really shown a serious desire to pull the levers of government. And I think that's what people across the Capitol complex are worried about. So if he keeps going up to bat and keeps trying and slowly gets some of his colleagues to turn, what kind of concessions do you think he's going to have to make or promises he's going to have to make to try to get those votes to put him over the edge? Well, one such uh, concession he may have to make, and gosh knows what form it could come in, is related to the 2020 election. He and both Congressman Steve Scalise, again, who was the first uh, winner of the GOP conference's vote for speaker, uh, but is now out of the running, though some people voted for him today off the floor. Both of them were election deniers, so to speak. They, They contested the results of the 2020 election on the House floor. And that was serious enough for one congressman to say they don't 
they are not fit for speaker. And that congressman is Ken Buck. That is uh, somebody who's sitting within the chamber right now. And again, one of their GOP colleagues who says that's a major thing. You shouldn't be denying the results of a free and fair election. Now, we know a lot of members of the Republican House conference do feel that way. They align with President Trump in that way. And Jordan and Trump are very close. So that might be one concession, but I don't think he'll have to make concessions similar to the ones that Kevin McCarthy had to make back in January. I think we're dealing with a very different ballgame here when it comes to Jordan, because McCarthy, again, was a moderate and Jordan is seen as a far right winger, somebody that's gone even more far right in his 16 years in Congress. And let's not forget, he's still a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, speaking of the 2020 election and very and very quickly, if Jim Jordan does become speaker as an election denier and so maintains that the 2020 election was stolen, if uh, Jim Jordan is the speaker of the House leading the House, is that a house that would uh, approve an election victory for, say, Joe Biden in 2024 over Donald Trump? It's been said in American politics that especially with the American presidency, that people when elected come to the Senate. Now, because this has never happened in American history, not even just modern American history, that a House speaker has been ousted, it remains to be seen how one would act once they take the gavel. I would think that Jordan would come to the middle a little bit because that's what the job requires. It does require compromise. It does require reaching across the aisle. And that's why many Republicans today are still calling for a consensus candidate. It's still not out of the question that Republicans could join with Democrats and find somebody that's more palatable than Jim Jordan. But to your question, yes, this puts a really great strain on how the House would deal with the results of the 2024 election, certifying those results. It puts us in completely uncharted territory. It would be impossible to predict how a speaker who feels the way Jim Jordan does now would behave once the 2024 election, 2024 election, excuse me, takes place and makes its way to be certified in January of 2025 in the House. Very, very unpredictable and truly historic. All right. Thanks so much. Rena Shah, Republican strategist, former congressional senior staffer, talking about uh, Jim Jordan's attempts to uh, run through some votes, trying to become Speaker of the House. A little later in the show, Fantasyland turned into a nightmare for people visiting Disneyland as a fight broke out. We're going to look into why we're seeing so many more scuffles at theme parks now. I thought it was the happiest place on earth. You can't be happy unless you're happy (laughs) having a fight. Uh, Right now, though, prosecutors in New Mexico looking to recharge Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter in connection with the fatal shooting of uh, Rust cinematographer Helena Hutchins. With us now is Rachel Fizet, defense attorney and legal analyst. Uh, Rachel, always good to have you on the show. How are you doing? My pleasure to be here. I'm well. And uh, so uh, is there anything to this? Uh, Have they uncovered new information that they want to do, or is this just political pressure from some people who feel like uh, Alec Baldwin uh, should have been charged in the first place? I have to believe they've uncovered new information. I think there was an August gun report that refutes Alec Baldwin's story that the gun may have been modified, which is would have been a big issue for the prosecutors to overcome when they had initially charged him. And now they have information that the gun had not been modified, which means Uh, I think we can take it from there. We can extrapolate that he must have pulled the trigger. And I believe his story has always been that he did not pull the trigger. And I think that is really the basis of what these new charges are. 
Right. Uh, apparently, the um, special prosecutors commissioned uh, a group to analyze that, a, to provide a gun analysis report. And apparently this is one of the biggest reasons, if not the reason, for recharging Alec Baldwin, that they found in this commission report that the gun had not been modified. However, you did point out that Baldwin has repeatedly maintained he never pulled the trigger. He's done interviews with ABC, CNN, and and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, someone's responsible, but it's not me. So if he's maintaining he didn't pull the trigger. How do you think prosecutors are going to be able to get around that? Well, if he's going to continue to maintain that he didn't pull the trigger, but now that they have firm evidence in their minds, at least that the gun was not modified, I think the experts will likely testify that in an unmodified gun, he had to have pulled the trigger. And so once he had to have pulled the trigger, if they're able to show that through their expert testimony, based on this new gun analysis, then they think they're one step closer to showing that he was acting recklessly in pulling a trigger and pointing it at Miss Hutchins. But even if he didn't know there was an actual live round in that gun, and they do decide that they believe he did pull the trigger, Again, how much farther can prosecutors go with that if he truly had no idea that there was a bullet in that prop gun? I agree with you in that they will always have that evidence working in favor of Alec Baldwin's defense, which is the the assistant director yelling cold gun. And so Alec Baldwin will always maintain that he thought there was no chance there was a bullet in the gun. Therefore, he would have safely pulled the trigger. I This is certainly not a slam dunk case in favor of the prosecution. It is a weird decision, in my opinion, to bring the case again, knowing that evidence. But I think it they feel that this gun analysis likely gets them to the point where they can again bring charges. All right. So, um Nobody knows how it's going to come out, but let's just say that Alec Baldwin uh, loses this case. What's the worst case scenario for him? I believe it's 18 months in, in prison in New Mexico. All right. Well, you can't put it more succinctly than that. Rachel Fizé, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Thank uh, you so much. Uh, defense attorney, legal analyst, talking about uh, some new charges, uh, recharged, uh, uh, refiling of charges against Alec Baldwin in the case of this uh, accidental shooting death of the cinematographer on the set of the movie Rust. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer this afternoon. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman. If you uh, drive through L.A., Long Beach, or Glendale, you will soon see some new cameras on the streets. They're going to be looking to catch people speeding and ticket them. Governor Newsom signed a bill allowing the cameras to go up starting next year, but could they eventually disappear like those old Red light cameras. A lot of people complained about those. Miguel Custodio is a legal analyst and L.A.-based personal injury and family attorney. Thank you so much, Miguel, for being here today. Thank you for having me. So the the author of the bill says that this speeding camera is going to be much different than the red light camera. A lot of uh, different things were changed because she said that she was aware that people hated the red light cameras. One is that you have to be going 11 miles over the speed limit and you do get a warning the first time. And if you do get ticketed, it's going to be uh, what you owe is going to be based on what you make. So you're not going to be slapped with some huge fine that is going to, uh, 
you know, uh, damage you economically, you know, financially. But um, it's also not going to impact your driving record. And there's not going to be a picture attached to this. So how are people going to be held accountable? Well, that's that's the the, the big um, worry here, right? It's is this does this law or not law, but is this are these cameras going to have any real bite? Because if the penalties are so trivial uh, and it's not going to go on your uh, record for DMV, your insurance is not going to find out about it, so your premiums won't go up. Uh, you know, I don't really see how it's going to uh, uh, combat speeding and speeding related uh, injuries and fatalities. I, I just don't. I think actually this might be more of a, a revenue generating uh, source of income for these cities because uh, let, let's face it, you know, I think that's that's where they're really trying to to bring in uh, the attention for this. But does that does that idea hold up though? If uh, they're going to be so lax in the initial enforcement of this, of giving people a warning, and it is not even uh, factoring in unless somebody's going up to eleven miles an hour over the speed limit, which is which is kind of a big jump. Uh, so, is it really just a revenue enhancement thing if they're not really going to get a lot of revenue from this, at least in the beginning? At least in the beginning, yeah, you know, there's studies that have shown that people do modify their behavior, their driving behavior, when there are surveillance videos around. So the hope is, right, the hope is that it is going to decrease the the amount of speeding. But, you know, what happened with the red light cameras that uh, were in place, you know, in the last several years, what ended up happening there is that there was decreasing revenue. And there was also um, more accidents that were occurring because people were slowing down when there was red light, uh, a yellow light turning to a red. They would just stop and therefore causing more rear end collisions. So we, uh, you know, the, the hope is that these cameras aren't going to somehow lead to an increase of some other type of collision. Well, speeding is definitely a problem. I mean, the numbers don't lie. The National Transportation Safety Board says speeding accounts for nearly a third of all traffic fatalities. The L.A. Department of Transportation says it speeding disproportionately impacts low-income communities. More people walking, more people biking, seniors and children. But I know you're saying that you don't necessarily agree 100 percent with the cameras for speeding. Um, but the issue with the picture is the thing that has me, uh, you know, really thinking how anyone is going to answer to these tickets when they get them. With the red light cameras, the picture was included. With these cameras, if I'm reading correctly, only the license plate is going to be captured in a picture. How can you prove at all that the person the car is registered to was the one who was driving? Yeah, and that's a good point. So, um, you know, whereas the red light cameras before actually had facial uh, recognition software, these these cameras are only going to be able to take photos of the license plate. And that was one of the things that made it easier for this bill to actually get signed, because that was one of the the, the I think the concerns that people had uh, that privacy. But, um, you know, the, the the fact is that courts have. Uh, said that driving is is not a private activity, and and so you can you know you can uh, take pictures, but with regards to this camera, uh, courts have held. There's a seventh uh, 
you know, U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that has said that issuing a citation to vehicle owners instead of the driver is constitutionally permissible. So it has it has it has passed the test in courts. And so I know it's a little weird, right? Because what if you are just lending your vehicle to your nephew and your nephew runs the red light? You're the one who's going to get the ticket. Does that sound fair? I, I don't think so. Right. OK, so if if. Uh... The speed cameras are not a good idea. Uh, that seems to be the way you feel. What is a good idea to get people to, to cut down on speeding? How how do we do that? Because that would uh, save some lives and some injuries. Sure. Well, you know, in, in, in the work that I do with a lot of personal injury uh, cases, we really see that the defect is with the way that these roads are designed, also improper or inadequate uh, signs that are, you know, in the streets, on the freeways. And I think if we're, if we look at it from that point of view, I think it'll lead to safer driving conditions if if the roads are, are better designed. All right, thanks so much. Uh, Miguel Casodio is a legal analyst, LA-based personal injury and family attorney. Disneyland supposed to be the happiest place on earth, but it wasn't. On Sunday, a fight broke out between five adults in Fantasyland. Maybe it was their fantasy to fight. Who knows? Uh, This is just part of a recent increase, though, in fights in brawls at theme parks in Southern California and also across the country. With us now is Robert Niles, editor of ThemeParkInsider.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what's wrong with people? (laughs) Well, I think the big issue is that whenever anybody goes at it at Disneyland or a wildly popular place like that, we've all got cell phones now, and that's going to be up on the Internet. That's going to go viral instantly. So we're going to know about this. And after years of seeing these fights online on our phones, I think there are a lot of people out there who have decided, oh, that's normal behavior. So if somebody bumps into me at a theme park, I can go after them. It's ridiculous, but it's clearly happening. So, Robert, wait. So are you saying that these maybe things have always happened at amusement parks? And we're talking about Disneyland in particular. And just because now we have social media and TikTok and people posting the videos that we're thinking it's a lot. Or is this something that's always happening? Because, well, I mean, just th- in the year a- 2023, yeah. I found uh, in my search for uh, fights and different situations at different at Orlando Disneyland and Anaheim mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and Disney World in Paris or Disneyland in Paris and, and they're all over the internet uh, you know right. is that a fair assessment to say these fights are happening more <clears throat> more and more at like Disney or is it like you said the social media thing well i think there have always been conflicts i mean i've worked in the parks i've done crowd control before there have always been conflicts in the parks but i think what's happened is because of all this that we're seeing of, people escalating these fights now. Uh, I think that's encouraged a lot of people to just just turn off their internal filter or whatever and just go at it, which is unfortunate. You know, you bring up a very interesting point, and it's something I have thought about. And I'm going to play old man yelling at cloud uh, here for a <laughs> second. And, and bear with me while I try to explain this, because I think you've touched on something that's really true. And I'm not just trying to be funny. Uh I sometimes wonder if people's behavior is tied to the fact that we are not fans of the old-fashioned sitcom anymore. Because think about the old sitcoms, what they were about. There was a quality of embarrassment for people who were doing something wrong. And they always Mm -hmm. learned their lesson, and they had to apologize at the end of it. And they had to understand and acknowledge that, well, now I understand how you felt about this. And yes, it was cheesy, it was tacky, it was stupid. But that was the behavior that was modeled for a lot of people who grew up watching shows like that. 
We don't have shows like that anymore. What we see are TikTok and YouTube videos of people being the worst person they can be, shouting insults, being as mean as they can be, getting into fights and making a cool video that way. So now, as you indicate, this has become normalized. Am I right or wrong? And why does this happen inside theme parks? Is it just because there, there are crowds? Yeah, I, I think you've pointed out the difference between a 23-minute narrative and a 23-second narrative because there's not time for that character development to happen. All we see is the highlight. All we see is the fight there on TikTok or whatever, the social media. And I think, uh, yeah, theme parks are a prime place for this sort of thing to happen simply because, as you mentioned, they are so crowded and also they're so popular. I mean, if a fight happens, uh, you know, in a crowded place that's uh, that that we all haven't visited before, maybe we don't spread that around as much as we do when we see a fight video from Disneyland, which is a place that we're all really familiar with. So in that way, the popularity of some of these venues work against it in terms of making the content go really viral. That's content that, frankly, the parks would prefer not to go viral. Sure. And you're talking about frustration levels and things like long lines. It's usually hot. You have all the kids with you. You've got the strollers and everything else. It is, you know, I'm not going to lie. As a parent, it it is so stressful for you as a parent spending the day there at the amusement park like that. But more and more, I'm seeing... Alcohol also offered Mm -hmm. at amusement parks, Uh, you know, not necessarily the best idea, do you think? Uh, It's things like alcohol and stress and heat and all of that. They kind of just they reveal what kind of person you are at your core. And I think for a lot of people, you do that. And then all of a sudden, you become a little more risk averse. You take care of yourself. You're trying to to fit in with everybody else. Other people, they think, particularly they're spending all this money. Hey, I must be a big shot. And if I'm a big shot, people have to get out of my way. And if they don't, I'm going to teach them a lesson. So we're really seeing, you know, it's kind of a character test, if you will. Now, obviously, every fight has its own unique uh, uh, reasons why something happened. And we can't tell from the little snippets that we're seeing on TikTok how something really happened. So it's hard to make a judgment about individual fights. But in general, I think uh, this is just it's a stressful situation that a lot of people are in. And we're seeing how people respond to that. All right, so you've got theme park experience. How do the theme parks feel when a video of a fight goes viral? Do they try to figure out ways to cover that up, to get that out of the way, distract from? What do they do? How do they fight well, back? I, yeah, there's there's no real way to fight back against it going viral. Once it goes, it's going to go. The, uh, the situation there is you you want to make sure that your operations are are such that these things aren't happening that often, so there aren't opportunities for them to go viral. This is a really tough time of year for Disneyland. This is the busiest time of the year for the park, Halloween into the Christmas season. That's that's the high season right now. So you've got a lot of people in there. Uh, the parks are stretched. They've got to staff up the kitchens. They've got to staff up the attractions so they can all operate at maximum capacity. And then you need extra people out there doing crowd control, kind of diffusing situation out on the pathways. It, it's tough to put that many people into the park, but that's what the parks are trying to do to try and defuse this situation so that they don't happen and end up going viral. And Robert, I don't mean to pick on Disneyland, but they did post on their website 
uh, before the holiday season last year, mm-hmm. asking people and visitors to be more courteous. They posted a message asking people to show respect, kindness, and compassion. And these are in response to these things that have been happening. So uh, clearly they see an issue and they are Absolutely. trying to address it. Absolutely. I mean, they they want to remind people that, hey, you know, you live in a world with a bunch of other people. And if we actually just try and get along with each other, it's going to be better for everyone. And if you're looking to pick a fight, hey, maybe this isn't the place where you want to come and do that. Uh, Unfortunately, not all of the people who are inclined to do that sort of thing read the fine print on uh, theme park websites. So I don't know how effectively that message gets through. But if it deters a few people, hey, it's worth it. And hey, maybe a, a little shame. When you act like a jerk. Well, like you said, that's the third act of every uh, sitcom is is the uh, consequences. And if we can bring that down on people who are behaving poorly in the theme parks, then, uh, you know, maybe that is the sort of thing we need to help discourage this behavior. Gee, Dad, I never thought of it that way before. (laughs) You know, a cheesy line, but I think we all could use a little of that now. Robert Niles, thank you so much. And a big group hug at the end. Yeah, big group hug. Absolutely. (laughs) Editor of uh, ThemeParkInsider.com. Talking about fights breaking out at Disneyland and other theme parks because there's so much stress going on. Uh, that's it for today's uh, KDEX In-Depth. Thank you so much for uh, listening. Oh, we're getting happy again. Yeah. Just... Actually, I'm starting to get annoyed now. <laughs> I'm going to start a fight. I'm not going to feel any shame about it at all. Uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer along with Alex Ramon and for Charles Feldman. We'll see you tomorrow at 1.